I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 5. We're going to read two passages from Ezekiel. I'm going to be preaching from the book of Ezekiel this morning. First of all, in Ezekiel 5, and then in Ezekiel chapter 36. I've chosen these two chapters because you will see as you read that there is a stark contrast between the two chapters. They were written at different times in different situations. Ezekiel chapter 5 was written before Jerusalem fell and the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Ezekiel 36 was written and spoken by Ezekiel after that event took place and was given as a way of encouraging the people who were in exile. Ezekiel chapter 5 was written to people who thought they would never go into exile. Unthinkable that the temple would be destroyed and Jerusalem would be taken. And he's shaking them out of their complacency. It's quite a terrifying picture. The one or two ministers that I know who will not read certain chapters in the book of Ezekiel, and this is one of them. I'm not of that persuasion, but it is, does not make easy reading, and it certainly is a horrifying picture of the consequences of Israel's unfaithfulness. We're going to pick it up at verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not you have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, indeed I even I am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments among them, among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds." Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One third of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I've spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations, that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. 
So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then in Ezekiel chapter 36... We read from verse 16. And you will notice he speaks of the judgments, but you read it and you, think, you sense this is something that is past. This is something that's been done, and God is going to do something new. And he has a very special reason why he is going to do something new in terms of restoring the people. And it's not, first and foremost, his love for them, although that is true. Follow the words and see if you can identify why God is going to do what he says he will do. Verse 16 then. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which you have profaned among the nations, which you have which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. And I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. 
I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I will cleanse, I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Let's turn once again to God in prayer. Let's seek his face, bring our intercessions, our supplications to him. Lord, we thank you for the new covenant that displays your wonderful power and grace. The pouring out of your Holy Spirit, renewing, giving new hearts, cleaning us from every spot and blemish and stain and sin. We thank you for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ by which we are justified and accounted righteous in your sight, by which we are adopted into your family, by which we are sanctified and being sanctified with that hope of glory set before us. And Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, our love, our hope, our joy, and delight in God and in all your ways. Lord, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us and to sanctify your holy name in our midst. For your name is holy. Your name is great and greatly to be praised. Your works display your great power and your great wisdom. Lord, you have caused this gospel to be preached to us. The Bible has been opened to us. Lord, our eyes have been opened to see the beauty and the glory and the preciousness of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. 
and that blood that cleanses us from all our sins. So we pray for the preaching of your word then today and ask our God that you would be pleased to bless that word this morning as it goes forth here as we consider the prophecy of Ezekiel. And we see your judgments and we see your grace and love at work and that you are willing to speak words of life to those who do not deserve it. Lord, we pray that in this town your gospel may sound forth. We do pray, our God, too, that you'll be with our pastor, Pastor Jeremy in Magrafelt, as he preaches your word there, that he might preach in power of the Holy Spirit and encourage your people. We do pray for Brian Stewart, the man who was to be baptized today. Pray that he might be restored to health and strength. We pray, our God, that throughout our land, where your gospel sounds forth, it might shine as light and truth and confound the powers of darkness. We pray, Lord, that throughout the nations of the world, the name of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed. And many might be turned here and throughout the nations from their sins to confess Jesus Christ as the only saviour of lost and guilty sinners. And Lord, we pray for your church where she is persecuted, where she is downtrodden, to ask our God that you would sustain our brothers and sisters, sometimes meeting in fear of being exposed, sometimes in fear of imprisonment, sometimes even in fear of death. Comfort them, strengthen them, and give them that courage and determination to continue to serve you. Lord, we pray for our own congregation here. We do pray, Lord, for those who feel afflicted, those who feel their physical weakness and frailty. We ask our God that you would be with them and strengthen them physically and emotionally and spiritually. Lord, we know that the outer man is perishing, but Lord, the inward man is being renewed being conformed more and more to that image of Christ. And you use all these afflictions in order to sanctify us. But Lord, you are the one who heals the brokenhearted. You are the one who heals the backslider. You are the one who shows your mercy to strangers, to the fatherless, to the widow. You are the one who draws alongside of us as an advocate, as our great high priest, one who is able to sympathize with us in all our temptations, in all our trials, one who has been tempted in all points like we are, yet is without sin. Lord, we pray that we might draw fresh supplies of grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Lord, we cry out unto you to hear our prayers, to hear our cries, to open up the scriptures to us. Lord, we need light, we need understanding, we need your Holy Spirit in order to take the things of Christ and make them precious to us. Lord, open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, and enable your servant to preach your word clearly 
and plainly to the saving of souls and the building up of the church of Christ here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to stand and sing again. Uh, this time hymn number two on our sheets. God has spoken by his prophets, spoken his unchanging word, each from age to age proclaiming God the one, the righteous Lord. Let's stand. <clears throat> The year is 622 BC, thereabouts, not absolutely sure. And in the house of a man called Boozy, that's B-U-Z-I, not Boozy as in drunk. In the house of Boozy there is great celebration in Jerusalem. 
a son has been born to Boozy and his wife. They're a priestly family. They're Levites. They're in Jerusalem. He serves in the temple. They call their son Ezekiel, which means God strengthens, or perhaps may God strengthen. 622, thereabouts, Josiah is the king in Jerusalem. He is the last good king in Judah. After that is disaster. Jeremiah has begun his prophecies in Jerusalem. These are the days before the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. That was in 586, 587. Remember BC, you're going down, backwards as it were. But when you open the book of Ezekiel, you don't find him in Jerusalem. He's miles and miles away from Jerusalem. Because as a young man, probably together with Daniel, he was taken away as a captive and led away to Babylon. This was before the fall of Jerusalem. There was a captivity then and a captivity when the nation fell, when Jerusalem was taken. We find in the opening words of Ezekiel that it's the fifth month of Jehoiachin's captivity. Jehoiachin was a successor of Josiah. He is, Ezekiel is among the captives by the river Chebar in Babylon. He is probably around 30 years old. And he's been there five years. Uprooted. No longer in his own familiar environment. And while he is there, something amazing happens. He has a vision of God in his glory. It's a strange vision. The heavens are opened and he sees the Lord in this mobile chariot-like throne. And it's a glory which he has never seen before. A brightness. He falls on his face. He's heard the voice of the God of glory speaking to him. And Ezekiel then is called to be a prophet. Now, what am I going to try and do this morning? I may be biting off more than I can chew. You will be the judge of that. But I'm going to attempt to give you an overview of the entire book of Ezekiel. I'm not sure I could do that in one sermon with Isaiah or Jeremiah, but the structure of the book of Ezekiel is such that I think it can be done. So you will be the judge. You see, you probably know one or two bits and pieces out of the prophet Ezekiel. I'm not going to sing the spiritual, uh, dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. Uh, you might have heard that. It's been popular for hundreds of years uh, now. But that comes out of Ezekiel. You probably know about the, 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 the valley of dry bones that came alive. 
You might know one or two other things about Ezekiel. You might remember the strange things, some of the strange things that he did, lying on his side for 390 days on his left side and then 40 days on his right side. That's in chapter 4. What's that all about? Well, you won't find an answer to that this morning. But Ezekiel, you might know, was when his wife died, God told him he was not to mourn. That's a very strange thing, a very hard thing to do. What is that all about? And when you get to the end of Ezekiel, there's all these details, intricate details about a new temple and sacrifices. What's that all about? You might know some of these things. You might know, you might have tried to read it through and say, I'm lost. I don't know what it's about. Well, I hope you will go away this morning, at least with a big picture. There are four things I want to cover this morning. First of all, to remind you that Ezekiel is the mouthpiece of God. He's a priest, but he's commissioned and sent as a prophet. And a prophet is someone who is God's spokesman, God's mouthpiece. He has seen the Lord in his glory on this chariot-like throne. The Spirit of the Lord has entered into him. And we read in chapter 2 and verse 2, The Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. If you drop down to verse 7, you see quite literally, he is the mouthpiece of God. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. And you read on, and he's commanded in this vision to eat a scroll. The scroll is the word of God. And he takes it down, he swallows it, as it were. It's a, it's a, it's a picture, it's an image you see, he is going to speak only the word of the living God. So he comes with God-given messages. He comes with God-given authority. And whatever you read in Ezekiel, even if you don't understand what you are reading and you can't make real sense of it, God says, these are my words. These are my words. Chapter 2 and verse 5, God says to him, they will know that a prophet has been among them. They will know that you are my mouthpiece. But more than a prophet, they will know that I am the Lord. Now that's a significant phrase in the prophecy of Ezekiel. It occurs 60, 70 times, and words and phrases that are similar to that a hundred times. They shall know that I am the Lord. Or, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. That phrase occurs 359 times in the Old Testament, and a third of them occur in the book of Ezekiel. So, don't be surprised as you read through, you keep getting these statements I am the Lord. 
I am the one who has spoken. Thus says the Lord, they shall know that I am the Lord. It harks back to the days of Moses, the burning bush, when God made himself known to Moses. I am who I am. And God goes on to say, that is not only my name, but he says in Exodus chapter 6 and Exodus chapter 7, when I redeem Israel out of Egypt, they will know that I am the Lord. And then he also says of Pharaoh, when the plagues come and Pharaoh is judged, Egypt will know I am the Lord. So there is blessing for Israel. They're redeemed. There is judgment. They will know God in judgment, Pharaoh. So here is Ezekiel then, first of all. He is the mouthpiece of God. He dare not speak except God has spoken to him and told him, you are to go and you are to be my mouthpiece. But then secondly, as the mouthpiece of God, he comes and tells Israel and also the nations, as we will see, but Israel in particular, or what's left of Israel, Judah, you will know the Lord in severe judgment. You will know the Lord in severe judgment. Now, in Exodus, it was Pharaoh. Now it is the people who have been identified as the people of God in their rebellion, in their sin. Here is Judah, here is Jerusalem. And when we read in chapter 5 of Ezekiel, we read these alarming words there in verse 9. I will do among you what I have never done, and the like of which I will never do again. Why? Because of your abominations, because of your sin. Now, say Ezekiel was prophesying in Babylon following the first exile that had taken place five years previously. He's speaking before the devastation because the people who have been exiled, they're half thinking, well, the day will come, we'll soon be, we'll soon be back home in Jerusalem. And the people who are living in Jerusalem, if they ever get wind of what Ezekiel is saying, he's saying exactly the same as Jeremiah is saying, judgment is going to come upon this city. It is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be burned to the ground. Its stones are going to be scattered. It's going to be a ruined city. It's going to be desolate. And the people were saying, oh, that will never, ever happen. God would never allow that to happen. Surely, Jerusalem, the temple, that's unthinkable. And what Ezekiel is saying is, you've got to start thinking a new way altogether. What you think is unthinkable is going to take place. And so you find that much of the first 32 chapters of Ezekiel are God's word of judgment spoken repeatedly over a period of five or six years before Jerusalem is burnt and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Chapters 1 to 24 
concern Judah and Jerusalem. You read them through, they are almost totally words of judgment. Occasionally there are shafts of light, like a slit in the wall, and the sunlight comes through and you see this is not going to be the total end of the story. There is a hope yet, but that hope is very dim at this point. Then chapters 25 to 32 are spoken as a judgment. You nations will also know that I am the Lord. The nations of Moab, Edom, Ammon, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, they will also know. But let me return to chapter 5 because it is a useful summary of what's going to take place. I know it is a horrifying chapter and a devastating picture. If you look at the opening words of chapter 5, we didn't read them. But again, Ezekiel does something very strange. Now, he would have a good head of hair on him and a beard. And he's told to take a sword and use it as a razor. Cut off all his hair, cut off all his beard, and then he's divided up into three equal parts. The first part is to be burned with fire. Now, he's not doing this privately in his own house. He's got to do this publicly so everybody can see. The first lot is burned in the fire. The second lot, I don't quite understand this, but he takes his sword and he sort of hammers what hair is left, cuts it up and destroys it. And then the third lot, he just throws it to the wind, blow away, scattered. It's a picture of the judgment that is to come. Chapter 5 and verse 4, take some of them again, throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire, for there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. Now, Ezekiel does some strange things. But they are intended as pictures of the judgment that is to come. And as you read on in this chapter, there is a horrifying picture of people desperate for food. But he says, you've defiled my dwelling place. You have no concern for my glory. Repeatedly, repeatedly, you have rejected me. I will send you pestilence, famine, sword. You'll be scattered among the nations. You'll know, verse 13, my anger, my fury, I will be avenged. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Now I've spoken it in my zeal when I've spent my fury upon you. You'll be a reproach, verse 15, a taunt, a lesson, a cause of astonishment among the nations of the world. They will look at what's going on and say, what on earth is going on here? Why is God dealing, their God dealing with them in this kind of way? And you have to ask yourself then, why? Why is there such severity? God says, I'm only doing this once. I've never done it before and I will never do it again. But this is the most severe judgment. Why so much anger? Later on in the prophets, he says, even if Job, Noah, and Daniel were among you, they would be saved because of who they are and the kind of life that they've led. 
They're holy men of God. But he said, I wouldn't spare the city, the rest of the city, even if they were alive and in the city. There's only one answer as to why. God is absolutely holy. And he cannot and he will not tolerate sin. It is an abomination in his eyes. What you must remember is that sin was rampant in Israel and even among those who had now been taken away into exile. They were not repenting of their sin. They were as defiant as they were in the land of Judah. They'd learnt nothing from being carted off to Babylon. The nation was rotten to the core. Prophets, priests, kings. Josiah was followed by Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, the last king in Judah. Remember the northern kingdom had long gone into captivity, taken away by Assyria. Judah and Jerusalem was just a tiny piece geographically that was left. But it was not just the leaders and the kings and the prophets and priests and kings, men, women, children. They were all involved in sin. They were all under judgment. And Ezekiel says, as the mouthpiece of God, the soul that sins, it shall die. That's the message that he's driving home. Sin will bring judgment and death. You are hard-hearted, you are rebellious. And yet there was still this widespread belief that God would never allow the city of Jerusalem, the temple, to be destroyed. And Ezekiel is saying, you are totally mistaken. You are wrong. You don't understand the nature of sin. And you don't understand, above all else, the holiness and the greatness and the majesty of the God of glory. You see the problem? Quite simple in one sense. They didn't believe God's word. They did not believe. They were in a state of unbelief. And that's a universal problem. That's the problem in the 21st century. Why don't people believe the word of God? Why don't people respond positively to the gospel? Why don't people become Christians? Quite simple. They don't believe what God says in his word. They don't believe about sin and judgment. They don't believe about the love of God in Jesus Christ. People say, why, why should God be angry with me? What have I done? What have I done to upset him and offend him? You know, people say that to you. They get angry. They get cross. And Ezekiel says it's because you've sinned against God. All of us by nature are sinful. We're guilty. We've broken God's laws and God's commands. If we lie, we cheat, we're covetous, we commit adultery, we blaspheme God's name, we don't love him, worship him, 
We break the Ten Commandments. But Ezekiel is dealing with something even more basic. He's dealing with the sin of unbelief, the refusal to believe what God says about judgment, about sin, about the sinfulness, the evil nature of sin, that it is something which is against God. Sin is not just an inconvenience, something that might make us unhappy and give us a bad conscience. Sin is against a holy God. And Ezekiel has seen God in his glory, in his majesty, seen him upon his throne, and he's seen him in his majestic holiness. And like Isaiah, he has felt his own sin, and now he's pressing upon this nation in their rebellion that they are worthy of the judgment of God because of their persistent unbelief. And yet... As you read through this book of Ezekiel, there are two chapters, Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 18 is in this first section that deals with these judgments. God says these amazing words, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now some people interpret God's judgment as he's rubbing his hands with glee of the thought of punishing sinners. That is absolutely wrong. Yes, God is holy and just. But God says, and says much his word is the words of judgment, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather that the wicked turn from their way. And in Ezekiel 33, it becomes a plea becomes a plea and God swears an oath as I live says the Lord I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked and then he pleads turn 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 from your sins our Lord Jesus Christ is no different when he was in the came to the Jerusalem of his day when he came there he grieved over Jerusalem we're told on another occasion he wept over Jerusalem Why did he weep? Why was he so upset? Well, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you're the one who killed the prophets. You rejected them. And he says, I want you to know how often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks under their wings to protect them. I didn't delight, I don't delight, he says, in the death of the sinners in Jerusalem. But then he says this, but you would not you persisted in your unbelief is there someone sitting here this morning who's doing precisely that yes your conscience is pricked you know that you are a sinner but you say I don't think God will judge me for that. Certainly not in this way. You don't understand your plight. You don't understand that it is God who diagnoses your condition. When you go to the doctor, you go to the doctor and he tells you what he thinks is wrong with you. You wouldn't know because you don't have the medical nafs. But the doctor diagnoses your condition. 
and says, here is the medicine that you will need to take, or you might need surgery in order to remove whatever the problem is. Now, it is God who diagnoses the state and condition of our own hearts and tells us that sin is serious. It's an abomination in his sight, and he will judge it, and he will cast you away from him. And yet he takes the next breath, I take no delight in doing that, but that you turn. It's a way of saying, come to me, come to me, repent of your sins. Turn from your sins, and I will forgive you, and I will cleanse you, and I will pardon you. And that's part of the message of Ezekiel. But if you are a Christian, you say, well, do I need to read these passages of Scripture about judgment? They're not pleasant reading, are they? And if you read consistently through Ezekiel, there's 32 chapters to plough your way through. And it's basically the same message. Well, what do we make of it if we are a Christian? Well, again, it's, it's, it's a reminder to us. It's to awaken us to the reality of God and his holiness and our remaining sinfulness. That sin is our basic problem. What happens is we become complacent. We can easily become careless. And we read chapters like these. And we sort of shrug our shoulders and brush them off and say, well, that might have been true of me in the past. It's no longer true of me. Ask yourself this question. Yes, you say, I'm a Christian. But does sin change its character when you become a Christian? No, you change. Your relationship to it changes. And your relationship to God changes. But does sin change its character? No, of course not. Sin is sin. You see, when you read a passage like this, it should be teaching us to hate, to hate sin and to hate all sin. So much of our Christian lives can be summarized under the things we love, the things that we hate. The things that we hate are sin, our sins. They're the ones that cause us sorrow and grief and distress and shame before a holy God. But then the things that we love, Jesus Christ, who shed his precious blood for us to save us from our sins. We love him. We love his word. We love his truth. We love the gospel. We love his church. We love his people. It's the things that are pleasing to God, the things that you love, the things that you hate. And reading this should stir up within you a hatred of everything that is contrary to God and that is contrary to God in your own life. You need to repent and be cleansed and then to love God and to love his son, Jesus Christ. Well, that in a broad picture gives you chapters 1 to 32. But then thirdly, as the mouthpiece of God, Ezekiel now says, you will know the Lord God in blessing, in salvation. The shafts of light that we saw in those earlier chapters, you'll find the hope of 
restoration now become bright shining sun like we have today outside it's like the midday sun it's clear it's plain because chapters 33 to 37 speak of restoration here is the gospel if you like in these chapters according to ezekiel he's taken the knife the surgical knife he's dealt with sin now it's time to close the wound and apply the medicine for healing and this is spoken chapters 33 to 37 are spoken after the hammer blow after jerusalem has been destroyed the temple raised to the ground and a whole load of people have been taken off exile into babylon and many have been killed the famine the pestilence the disease the sword it's all come and the people are in danger of holding up their hands and saying well okay we we now realize that what was unthinkable has happened is taken place what hope is there left what hope is there left we listen to all those prophets those false prophets they said we'd be safe we'd be okay jerusalem would never be destroyed we know there was a jeremiah who said yeah it will happen these prophets are not true they're false but we didn't trust those false prophets why should we trust any prophet ezekiel claims to be naming the name of god and saying what god will do why should we listen to him these people are in a state of great distress and so he speaks to them words of comfort words of hope words of restoration words that are also to be believed not to go on in unbelief but these words of blessing you will know that i am the lord your god and you will know that i am the lord and you will know me in blessing and in salvation let me turn you again to chapter 36 the other chapter that we read earlier on and left here to marvel firstly at god's purpose he says you've profaned my holy name then in verse 22 he says thus says the lord god i do not do this what i'm about to do for your sake o house of israel but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went see god is jealous for his name for his glory his honor they've defiled it and he will work but how will he work he will work in amazing love and grace renewing the people of god that's what we find find there in chapter 36 verse 27 verse 26 i will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you i will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh i'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them that's a prophecy that's going to be fulfilled when is it fulfilled well remember john chapter 3 where jesus speaks to nicodemus nicodemus you need to be born from above nicodemus you need to be born again born of the spirit 
You need a new heart, regeneration, a new heart, a new life, a new pattern of life. You need clean water sprinkled on you to be cleansed from your sins. And that is what is being spoken of here in Ezekiel chapter 36. If you go back a couple of chapters into chapter 34, there you will find the promise of a shepherd. A shepherd who is going to be the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. God says there in verse 23 of chapter 34, I will establish one shepherd over them. He shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, it can't be David literally, can it? Because David's been dead a long time, 500 years. He's speaking of the one who comes as the greater son of David. He's speaking of the Messiah. How do we find this, this Messiah presented to us? In John chapter 10, he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And Ezekiel is speaking of him. He's speaking of the restoration of the people of God having a shepherd. They've had so many false shepherds who've mis misled them, neglected them, couldn't care less about them, destroyed them, scattered them on the, on the high hills. And God says, I'm going to gather my people under this one head, under Christ, under the Messiah and then there's the chapter, chapter 37, the dry bones chapter. God is going to resurrect them, going to make them. They're, they're dead. There's the valley of dry, dead bones, just bones and more bones. And the bones come together in this vision. And then flesh on the bones. God is going to bring about a resurrection it's, the, it's his language all the while to, to describe that God will come again and visit his people. And there won't be any more famine, no more sword, no more exile. But there will be plenty. The land will be restored to them. And what Ezekiel is saying to these people is, yes, God has brought this severe judgment. And you know the Lord in that severe judgment. But now he will come in blessing. And I, I'm building your hope. I'm giving you comfort in the midst of your distress. And I want you to believe this is what the Lord God says. This is what he will do. He will come and he will renew you. And you see, when you, when you, when you put Ezekiel in the whole context of the scriptures, what you see is this. God makes promises, promises, promises repeatedly. And God will never, ever abandon his promises. He will never change his promises. The promises he made to Adam and to Eve. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham will become the father of many nations. But Abraham himself will be a blessing to the nations. And in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Galatians 3 tells us that that seed is Jesus Christ. 
Or you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, and there God promises David an everlasting throne, an everlasting kingdom. And when Jesus is born to Mary, he's the seed of David. He's the king who's going to come on the throne. He's the shepherd who's going to care for the flock of God. You see, here is a nation that is in dire straits, in dire distress. But those promises remain. And you know, there's a prophet in Jerusalem, Jeremiah. He goes way past the captivity and the destruction. He's still there after Babylon is destroyed. So God has his mouthpiece in Jerusalem. He has his mouthpiece in Babylon. He's put a prince no less than a prince and two or three of his friends in the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And then when the people come back, he sends them an Ezra and a Nehemiah and raises up more prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And he even has a lady in the court of a king, a Persian king called Ahasuerus. You know, I'm referring to Esther. See, God has not abandoned his purpose. God has not abandoned his people. Satan may do his worst. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar may do their worst. But here is a reversal, here is a restoration that only God can bring about. And that's where our hope and our comfort lies. In God, in his word, in the salvation that he promises here in Ezekiel and is fulfilled and is being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit into this world, into our hearts, so that we might believe the gospel. So you see, he is the mouthpiece of God. He speaks words of severe judgment. You will know the Lord in judgment. Ah, but then he speaks, you will also know the Lord in blessing, in salvation. And that brings me to the fourth and last thing. This mouthpiece of God speaks of the final triumph of God's purposes. Chapters 38 to 48. Chapters 38 and 39 are strange. You heard of Gog and Magog? We're not sure what Gog and Magog, who they are, but they are some mighty, powerful foe. And you have here a conflict. And the enemies of God, Gog and Magog, are going to be overthrown. They're going to be destroyed. There's going to be a great battle. Now, a lot of people who try to interpret that, and we get some weird and wonderful interpretations about the last days. I, I'm not going to go into any of that. I don't think we need to. Gog and Magog, they will know the Lord in judgment. Now, it's interesting, in, 30, uh, in chapters 40 to 48, it does not say, you will know the Lord in blessing. Interesting. I, don't, I haven't found a reason for that. But I can tell you what it does say. Because you see, in earlier on in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel in a vision 
sees the Lord of glory depart from Jerusalem. God abandons his people to his judgment and he departs from Jerusalem. But then in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, you'll find in chapter 43 that Isaiah has another vision and the glory of the Lord returns to this new Jerusalem and this new temple. And it's very interesting. If you just turn to the last words of the prophecy of Ezekiel, they are remarkable because it says there in verse 35, all the way around shall be 18,000 cubits. This is the city. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. That's all we need to know. The Lord is there. The glory of the Lord may have departed from that earthly Jerusalem. It has departed. But when this vision is given of a new city, of a new land, and of a new temple, we are told simply, the Lord is there. That's all that matters. And the Lord is there in blessing. The rest of the nations, the other world nations, they will know. They will know that the Lord is there. But you see, God is comforting these people. And what are these last chapters about? They say it's a restored land. It's a restored city. It's a restored temple. Some people say, well, now you need to take it literally. Well, if you take it literally, you're going to have big problems. Because in chapter 48, you'll find, you take it literally, you work out the measurements, the city, the, the, sorry, the temple is outside the walls of the city. <laughs> so you can't, you can't really take this literally. It's not meant to be taken literally. You see, there are some Christians today who will tell you that one day these prophecies are going to be fulfilled, the temple is going to be rebuilt, and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament are going to be put back in place. I've got one big problem with that. It's quite simple. Christ has come. He's fulfilled it all. We don't need any more animal sacrifices. Christ has made the one sacrifice for sin. I think these latter chapters are really the prophet Ezekiel giving us a, a priestly view, if you like, in Old Testament terms that the people would understand. It's a picture of heaven. It prefaces the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. God will be among his people. That's why I read right at the very beginning, Revelation chapter 21. God is there. I will be your God. You will be my people. You are my dwelling place. That's what this book is about. And it's intended then to build up our confidence in God. In the midst of all that we see going on around us and the doubts and fears and concerns and cares that we have as we see unbelief on every side and we see the darkness and the ignorance of men and women who are 
treading all over the word of God and denouncing it and saying, you know, we don't believe this stuff. It's outdated, it's outmoded. Our confidence must remain in God, in his word, in his promise. And there is our comfort. There is our hope. There is our joy in God and in God alone. The only question remains is, do you believe it? Do you believe it and embrace it? The more you believe, the more trust and confidence you have in God, the greater will be your joy and delight in God, and the greater will be your desire for his honour and for his glory. Ezekiel is the mouthpiece of God. But he's not only speaking to his generation, he's speaking to every generation about the God who made us, the God who redeems us, the God who will judge his enemies, they will not stand. And the God who blesses his people with salvation, blessing in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our confidence. To his name be praise forever and ever. Amen.